The title of this morning's sermon is, What Does the Bible Say About Divorce and Remarriage? On Sunday morning, we've been working our way through Luke's gospel verse by verse. We find ourselves at Luke 16, 18. Don't turn there yet. <clears throat> We're going to look at some more places in Scripture before reaching that verse. I'm going to begin a little differently this morning in that I'd, int- I'd like to introduce a few things before opening in prayer. By my calculations, I preached about 550 sermons here at Within Christian Church. And I can honestly say that this is the first time that I've ever dreaded preaching a sermon. I knew that this was coming, and I vainly hoped that there would be some way to avoid it. But I don't want to shrink back from, I don't want to shrink back from faithfully teaching the whole counsel of God's word. As we begin, I think it is very important that you understand what my heart is and is not in this sermon. We have people in this church who are divorced and remarried and married to divorced people and my heart is not to condemn them. Instead, my heart is to condemn divorce. The statistics I found state that the divorce rate among evangelical Christians is 26% compared to 33% for the rest of the population. I would like to see these numbers go down. Amen? You guys would too as well, I'm sure. I want to discourage divorce among those who are married, and I want to discourage divorce among those who will be married in the future. And so if you are single, you should pay special attention to this sermon because I believe if more people got married, knowing completely what God's word says about divorce and remarriage, I think we would see less divorces. Just this past week, I received two messages from people who I don't know who wanted to divorce their spouse. One email was from a woman who claimed to be abused by her husband, and another email was from a man who claimed to be abused by his wife, his wife. I also received two comments on my blog this week, one from a man who wanted to divorce his wife and another comment from a woman who wanted to divorce her husband. I would like to think that if these people knew what God's word says about divorce and remarriage, they would not be thinking about divorcing their spouse. Second, and please look at me when I say this, I want you to know that I personally do not think that I am any better than anyone who is divorced or has married a divorced person. If I had married any of the girls that I dated or I became a Christian after I was married, I'm sure that I easily could have been divorced. Third, if you sit here listening to this sermon, wondering how people who are divorced or married to divorced people are feeling, I want to let you know that many of the people I have spoken to who have been divorced will be some of the first to tell you that they wished that the church preached more frequently and more boldly against divorce. Fourth, I'm sharing a view this morning that I did not hold at the beginning of my Christian life. The church I was saved at, uh, Calvary Chapel, and then the church that I began uh, ministry in, Grace Baptist, held a different view than I'll be sharing this morning. I came to this view, which is the view of this church, after studying the scriptures for myself and deciding that I wanted to believe what the Bible said versus what I had been taught. Now, fifth, Most of you know that if you want to believe something or you want to disagree with something, you are not going to have much trouble searching the internet to find something that will agree with you or allow you to disagree with whatever it is that you want to disagree with. Making this even more difficult is some of the people who disagree with what I'm going to be sharing with you are not ungodly people who would promote homosexuality or abortion. Instead, they are godly people whom I greatly respect. But the standard is what? 
The standard is God's word. The standard is not what any of these people think. The standard is not what I personally think. The standard is what scripture says. So as we begin, as your pastor, I would like to ask you to do your best to receive what God's word says, even if it disagrees with something that you have previously heard or believed or could find on the internet. And with that, let's pray. Father, I come to this topic with a heaviness that I've never felt associated with preaching a sermon before. I know there are people listening who will be hearing things this morning that uh, they would conflict with what they've heard before or believed previously, and I just pray, Lord, for receptive hearts. I don't ask that there would be anyone here who would embrace my opinions or agenda, as I don't believe that I have one. I, I believe I'm doing my best to rightly divide your word and present what it says. I, I would ask if, if there's any ways in which I don't rightly divide anything, that it would bear no witness to your people, that they would be protected from it. But if I do rightly divide your word, if I present it clearly, then I pray they would receive it as though you yourself are speaking to them because that is the truth of the situation. And so I pray, Lord, that regardless of what people have uh, believed about this previously and whatever, and regardless of what situation they find themselves in, whether uh, being single, married, married to divorced people or divorced and remarriage, whatever the case, they would strive to have open hearts by the grace of your Holy Spirit that would allow them to receive this teaching, assuming that it's faithful to your word. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hopefully you're still in 1 Corinthians 7. Go ahead and look with me at verse 10. Paul says, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. And Paul said this because Jesus talked about this, as we'll see. He did not say this because it did not have as much authority, because Jesus ta- because Paul's saying it versus Jesus saying it. He says, not I but the Lord said this because this was something that Jesus himself had talked about, as we'll see. He says, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else she should be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. This verse discusses separation, so let me briefly address that. I told you that I received two emails this week from people claiming to be abused by their spouse. Responding to emails like this is always difficult because the Bible tells us that we're not supposed to come to Uh, conclusion regarding a matter without hearing both sides of it first, right? And I never have the opportunity to hear the other person's side. And generally, you can guess that the emails I receive tend to be biased and make the spouse sound terrible, while the person who is writing the email tends to sound like a victim. I told both of the people that contacted me that there can be situations warranting separation. And so to be perfectly clear about this, and I speak for the other elders when I say this, we definitely do not think that people should remain in abusive situations. But just because people should not remain in abusive situations does not mean that they have permission to divorce. Verse 10 even says that a wife should not separate from her husband, but then it discusses the conditions if she chooses to do so. This shows that separation is discouraged, but is also permissible. But divorce is not permissible. God says if people separate, then what? What does it say? Come on, guys. What does it say? If they separate, they should remain unmarried or they should reconcile. And please keep that in mind. Let me share part of a response. 
from one of the women after I told her that even if she separated from her husband or even if he was abusing her and it necessitated separation, she still could not divorce him. And she said, and I quote, thank you for your reply. I will consider this carefully. He is not a Christian, and so I might go through the divorce because he has symptoms of being disordered. First, I don't know what she meant about him being disordered, and second, I'm assuming probably all of us to some extent are disordered, right? She said that she thought she could divorce him because he is not a Christian. If she does, she will disobey scripture because believers are commanded to remain married to unbelieving spouses. And this brings us to lesson one. Believers should remain married to unbelievers. Believers should remain married to unbelievers. Look at verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. And so Paul isn't saying that the Lord doesn't believe this. This is written by God himself. He's just making this point that this was not something that Jesus or that the Lord had said during his earthly ministry. And so Paul says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother, this means a man who is a believer, has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. And so the verses say perfectly clearly that if a believer, whether a man or a woman, is married to an unbeliever and that unbeliever is willing to stay with the believing spouse, then the believing spouse should remain with that unbelieving spouse. Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. <clears throat> now, this part about being made holy has caused lots of confusion, but it shouldn't if we understand what holy does not mean and does mean. Holy does not mean saved. <laughs> We've talked about this before, that holy means what? What two words? Set apart. Inanimate or non-living objects can be holy when they are set apart for God, but they can't be saved. Unbelievers who are married to believers are made holy or they are set apart for a special work. We know that one of the best ways for unbelievers to come to salvation is through relationships with believers. Could an unbeliever have a more intimate or set-apart relationship than through marriage or through being married to a believer? A believer staying in the marriage can provide that influence for that unbelieving spouse to come to faith, which is exactly what Paul goes on to say in verse 16. He says, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife. Again, this doesn't literally mean that a husband could save his wife or that a wife could save her husband, but it does mean that the unbelieving spouse is being exposed to the believing spouse's faith, and it could lead to that unbelieving spouse's salvation. It's not a guarantee, and Paul writes it that way. He says, how do you know that this won't happen? So how tragic is it when believers divorce an unbeliever when that believer might be the unbeliever's greatest chance to come to Christ. 
I have heard Christians talk about wanting a divorce because of how terrible their spouse is. And in my mind, I'm thinking the worse you make your spouse sound to me, the more convinced I become that this person needs Christ. And what are the greatest chances of this person coming to Christ? Through their marriage to you, through you remaining with them. The other matter that Paul addressed, so he talked about a believer remaining with an unbeliever, but now he addresses an unbelieving spouse separating. So first he talked about a believer not departing from an unbeliever, but now he talks about an unbeliever choosing to depart from a believer. And look what he says in verse 15. If the unbelieving partner separates, look at this, let it be so, let them go. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So while believers are instructed to stay in the marriage and be an influence to win the unbelieving spouse, can a believer force an unbeliever to remain in the relationship? No, absolutely not. And so if the unbelieving spouse chooses to depart, God says that that believer is not enslaved. In the New King James and NASB, he says not under bondage. Or in the NIV, it says not bound. This is one of the most commonly quoted verses to support divorce. People will say, my spouse separated from me, or I have been abandoned, and therefore I am no longer bound to this person and I am free to remarry. That is not what the verse is saying. And this brings us to lesson two. Not bound means you don't have to force, have to force a spouse to stay, but it doesn't mean free to remarry. Not bound means you don't have to force a spouse to stay, but it doesn't mean free to remarry. <clears throat> The context is separation. You can tell as we've been building up to this point that that is what Paul is talking about. He's talking about believers not separating from unbelievers, and he's talking about if unbelievers separate from believers. The context is separation, and God is saying that Christians are not bound to make the unbelieving spouse stay, and he gives the reason for this because God has called us to what? It's right there in the verse. God has called you to peace. Fighting with a spouse to get them to stay is antithetical or opposed to God's call on our lives as Christians to be at peace. So the believing spouse is free to let the person depart so that the conflict ends. Plus, are people ever won to Christ through conflict and strife? Have you ever argued anyone into salvation? Has anyone ever crossed their arms and you fought with them enough that they finally surrendered their lives to Christ? It doesn't happen that way. So if you have made reasonable efforts to remain with your spouse, but they choose to leave, you're not expected to, force, to stop them or force them to remain. It's almost like Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. <clears throat> if we change this to apply to marriage, it could read this way. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with your unbelieving spouse but if they are determined to leave, you are not bound to make them stay. But it doesn't mean you're not bound to the person in marriage any longer. It does not mean you are not bound and free to remarry. 
And we know this because of what Paul just said in verses 10 and 11. Look back there. Look back at verses 10 and 11. Paul said, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, if there's a separation, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband husband should not divorce his wife. So God says, If the unbelieving spouse departs, the believing spouse should remain unmarried or should reconcile. God is not going to contradict himself by saying that in verses 10 and 11 and then turn around and say the opposite in verse 15. In other words, God is not going to say, if your spouse departs, you should remain unmarried or be reconciled. And then say, if your spouse departs, you're no longer bound to that person and are free to remarry. That'd be a contradiction, only a few verses apart. Even if an unbelieving spouse departs from a believing spouse, do you see how that believing spouse can still have a gospel influence on the unbelieving spouse by remaining faithful? Let me say that one more time. Do you see how if an unbelieving spouse departs, the believing spouse can maintain a gospel influence toward that person by remaining faithful to that person despite that person's unfaithfulness. What is going to be a better representation of the gospel than someone who remains faithful despite someone's unfaithful? Or what looks more like Christ than to be faithful to someone who is being unfaithful to you? Isn't that why you love Christ? Because of his faithfulness to you despite your unfaithfulness to him what could represent the gospel better to an unbeliever than that and look at verse 39 a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives but if her husband dies she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the lord or he must be a believer so verse 39 is making the same point that spouses are bound to each other as long as they live. And then the verse identifies when a person is free to remarry, and when's that? When the spouse dies. As long as the person, he says, is in the Lord or is a believer, which harmonizes with uh, chapter 6 of Corinthians, where Paul says to be equally yoked or not to marry someone who's an unbeliever. And this brings us to lesson 3. Remarriage is permissible if a spouse dies. Remarriage is permissible if a spouse dies. God clearly identifies that as the condition for remarriage. And this is not the only place in Scripture making this point. Go ahead and turn to the left to Romans 7. Turn one book to the left to Romans 7. Okay, look with me at verse 2, Romans 7, verse 2. A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Verse 3, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So God is always repetitive for a reason, and two times 
In verse 2, and then again in verse 3, he says that remarriage can take place when a spouse dies. The same thing that he said in 1 Corinthians 7. So we see a harmony between these two passages, establishing the condition for a person to remarry, which is the death of a spouse. Now, I want to briefly address vows so you can understand why this is the case. In the Bible, a vow is a promise that is made to God. And the seriousness of vows is repeatedly emphasized in Scripture. When we make vows, we are entering what's known as a debtor's relationship with God, which is why Scripture repeatedly talks about doing what with our vows? Paying them. Psalm 50, verse 14, pay your vows to the Most High. In other words, the debt continues until, or the vow continues until the debt is paid. Psalm 116, verse 14, I will pay my vows to the Lord. Ecclesiastes 5, for when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Jonah 2, verse 9, I will pay what I have vowed. And there were other verses making the same point. Whatever the motive behind a vow, God holds us to it. Numbers 30, verse 2, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. We're even told to keep our vows to our own detriment. If you've ever wondered, maybe it would be to my detriment to keep this vow, should I keep it? You don't have to wonder that any longer. Scripture tells us to keep our vows even to our own detriment. Psalm 15, verse 4, God honors those who swear to their own hurt and do, and do not change. All of this should sober us to the idea of making vows to God and then not keeping them. Now, hopefully you see what this has to do with marriage. Our marriage vows are the most significant and most well-known vows that we make. And there are three points that I, I want to share with you. First, whenever I officiate weddings, and I'm assuming most of you probably see me officiate a few of them, maybe you've noticed that right before the bride and groom are about to perform their vows, I always remind them that they are making these vows to each other but most importantly, they are making these vows to whom? To God himself. Second, we covenant with God to keep our vows till death. That is the vow. Till death do us part. In the vows themselves, we promise that only death will dissolve this marriage. Third, vows are not conditional on the other person remaining faithful to their vows. Let me say that one more time. The vow we make is not at all conditional on the other person observing their vows. In other words, we are not alleviated of our vow simply because someone else has been unfaithful. And you notice that because vows in a wedding do not contain what word? If. You never say, I will do these things for you if you do these things for me. You vow to do these things for someone unconditionally. Now, young people, please give me your attention. You are the ones who should be particularly sobered to some of the things that I am talking about this morning. Remember that when you get married, you are vowing to remain faithful to this person till death do us part, regardless of what that person ever does or how that person ever acts. That is an incredibly sobering commitment. 
Let's turn further to the left to Luke 16, 18. This is the verse that we reached in our verse-by-verse study through Luke's gospel that necessitated this sermon. Turn to the left to Luke 16, 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Just one more time. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So Jesus makes two points with this verse. First, he says that a man who divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery. Second, he adds that even if a man is not divorced, but he marries a woman who is divorced, he's also committing adultery. Now turn to the left again to Mark 10, verse 11. Mark 10, verse 11. Jesus said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. One more time. Mark 10, 11. He said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So it's similar to Luke 16, 18. Again, Jesus says that if a man divorces his wife and marries someone else, he commits adultery, and he adds something for wives— If a wife divorces her husband and marries someone else, she also commits adultery. Now, before we move on from these verses, I need you to keep in mind that in Luke and in Mark, Jesus used the word adultery because he is talking about married people. And the significance of this will become clear in just a moment. Now, let me share something important. Do you recognize that all of the verses that we have looked at up to this point in 1 Corinthians 7, Romans 7, Luke 16, and Mark 10, all harmonize together perfectly. There are no inconsistencies, there are no difficulties associated with these verses reconciling with each other. The verses taken together are all making the exact same three points. If you marry someone while you have a living spouse, you commit adultery. If you marry someone who has a living spouse, you commit adultery. And if your spouse dies, then you are free to remarry. Now go ahead and turn to the left again to Matthew chapter 1. Turn to the left to Matthew 1. And while you turn there, let me just share something with you. Matthew is the gospel written to the Jews. It has a Jewish audience in mind, just like Luke, the only Gentile author in Scripture, not surprisingly, is written to a Gentile audience. You see the Jewishness of Matthew's gospel in that he repeatedly refers to Christ as the son of David, showing his Jewish ancestry. All of Matthew's major themes in his book focus on the Jews' messianic expectations, which is why Matthew, more than any other gospel, quotes the Old Testament. Gospel writers refer to the kingdom of God. Have you ever noticed when you're reading Matthew's gospel what he refers to? What does he refer to? The kingdom of heaven. And why is that? Because he knew his readers, the Jews' sensitivity toward God being written. And so instead of saying kingdom of God, which all the other 
New Testament writers, the whole rest of the New Testament says Matthew is the one gospel 32 times, I believe, to say kingdom in heaven. And you don't even see kingdom of heaven anywhere else except in Matthew's gospel. Because Matthew is written to Jews, it cites Jewish customs without explaining them or giving them context. In contrast to the other gospels, which do explain Jewish customs to us. For example, Mark 7, 3. The Pharisees and the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And so when Mark talks about the Jews washing their hands, he says that they do it out of tradition, or he explains why they do it. He explains the custom. John 19, 40. 19, John 19, 40. They took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So when John talked about Jesus' body being bound with cloths and spices, he says that it's their custom. But Matthew talks about Jewish customs without any explanation. And this is important to understand because there is a Jewish betrothal and divorce which must be understood if Matthew's words on divorce later in his gospel are going to be understood correctly. So look with me in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So at this time, Joseph and Mary are what? not a trick question they're what they're betrothed but they're not they're not married joseph finds out mary's pregnant and he knows the baby's not his so look what happens in verse 19 her husband joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame resolved to divorce her quietly joseph was going to divorce mary even though they weren't married this would not seem strange to Matthew's Jewish readers, but it seems strange to us because, unfortunately, we commonly associate betrothal with our what? It just happened this past week. Someone was talking to me, and they said, well, betrothals are like our engagements. No, our betrothal, or excuse me, their betrothals are like our engagements. No, our engagements definitely are not like Jewish betrothals. A betrothal was almost as binding as our marriages. It would actually be more appropriate to say that a Jewish betrothal is more like our marriage than it is like our engagement. Betrothed couples were regarded as husband and wife even before the wedding. Notice Joseph, in verse 19, what was Joseph called, even though they weren't married yet? It says her husband. Stoning was the punishment under the law if there was unfaithfulness, not during just the marriage, but during the betrothal period. Deuteronomy 22, 23 to 30, 24 tells us that. Now, most importantly for this sermon, betrothals were so serious they could only be broken off with a divorce. Our engagements end with a woman walking up to her fiancé and handing him the ring, right? That is not how it worked with Jewish betrothals. They could only be dissolved with a divorce. Now, with that in mind, go ahead and turn to Matthew 5, please. You know, I'm just going to pray again. Just let me pray again. Let's just pray together one more time. Father, I just come before you in the middle of this sermon. 
I'm just asking again for receptive hearts. I don't know how new this is to the people here. Maybe most of them, maybe all of them, except for a few. Lord, I pray for receptiveness, for receptive hearts. I think about the parable of the soils, and I just pray for soils that are receptive to the seed that you want to plant on it, especially as we come into these verses. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 5.31 It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I'm not going to have you turn to Matthew 19, but just so you know, that's the other place in Matthew's gospel that makes the same point that Jesus is making here in Matthew 5. I do not believe that Jesus is permitting a divorce when people are married. I do not believe that Jesus is permitting a divorce here. No matter how many people have taught that or preached that or who has said it or how many times you've heard someone declare that, Jesus is not permitting a divorce here when people are married. He is permitting a divorce during a betrothal period. Just like Joseph and Mary, and this brings us to the next lesson. Jesus, lesson four, Jesus only permitted divorce during betrothals. Jesus only permitted divorce during betrothals. And here are the four reasons that I'm convinced Jesus is permitting divorce when people are betrothed versus married. First, we have the example of a divorce with Joseph and Mary during their betrothal period. Second, there are no other gospels or epistles that support divorce when two people are married. Let me say that one more time. You will not find anything else in any of the gospels or any of the epistles that contradicts this or argues that people can divorce when they are married. Third, we want the Bible to interpret the Bible And this is the only interpretation that harmonizes with 1 Corinthians 7, Romans 7, and Jesus' words in Mark 10 and Luke 16. Let me say that one more time. All of the verses we read earlier harmonize perfectly. The interpretation that I'm sharing with you right now in Matthew 5 is the only interpretation that harmonizes Matthew 5 with all of the other verses that we just read in Mark and Luke and 1 Corinthians 7 and Romans 7. In other words, if Jesus was permitting a divorce when two people are married, not only would he be contradicting what he said in Mark and Luke, he would also be contradicting what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7 and Romans 7. Does that make sense? That is a big deal. We must always hold to the interpretation that allows Scripture to interpret itself and harmonize with itself. So if all we had was Matthew's gospel, or I can't even say that because we'd almost have to remove Matthew 1, because Matthew 1 could convince us of a divorce during the betrothal period, that that's what Jesus says in Matthew 5. But if all we had was Matthew 5, we could believe that people are permitted to divorce when married. But the moment we take the context of these other verses that I've been sharing, this is the only interpretation that harmonizes all of them and prevents Jesus from contradicting himself in Mark and Luke and contradicting Paul in Romans and Corinthians. If you look at verse, oh, in these verses, fourth, 
Take your minds back to Jesus's words in Mark and Luke. I told you to notice when we were in Mark and Luke that Jesus used what word? And this is important. In Mark and Luke, what was the word I told you to notice that Jesus used? Adultery because he was talking about married people. He was talking about unfaithfulness in marriage. In these verses, when Jesus talks about unfaithfulness, he uses the words sexual immorality because he is not talking about married people. He is talking about people who are betrothed. If Jesus was talking about married people, he would have used the word adultery instead. If you look at verse 32, it is almost identical to Luke 16, 18 and to Mark 10, 11. In fact, if you take out the phrase, the clause, except on the ground of sexual immorality, it reads almost identically to what Jesus said in Mark and Luke. I'll take out that clause. Matthew 5, 32, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The only difference is the phrase, except on the ground of sexual immorality. So why, this is important, give me your attention, why did Jesus add that phrase here, but not in Mark and Luke? Because here he is talking to a Jewish audience that engaged in betrothals, and he was letting them know that a betrothal could only be broken off, like Joseph was going to do with Mary, if there was sexual immorality. A betrothal was, if it was broken off for any reason other than sexual immorality, the couple were still considered betrothed, and their future relationship, which Jesus said, would result in adultery. But it wasn't adultery before that because they're not yet married. So Jesus is giving prescription for his Jewish audience how a Jewish betrothal would be broken off. Now, understandably, one of the questions you probably have is what should people do if they remarried with a living spouse? Or what should people do if they married someone with a living spouse? Now, first, I understand that this teaching might be new to many of you. If you divorced your spouse and you remarried someone else, or you married someone with a living spouse, you might have done so. And let me just say, please, if you are divorced and remarried, if you are married to a divorced person, please believe me when I say this. We love you. We love you. We have no condemnation for you. We do not think we're better than you. We know we could very easily ourselves have been divorced. We are for your marriage. In fact, I don't want to sound arrogant. You probably won't find people that are more for marriage than we are. I don't know people that have as high a view of marriage. Does that sound arrogant when I say that, Nathan? I don't mean it to sound arrogant, but you will not find anyone who will work as hard. Now I am sounding arrogant, I think, but (laughs) we will not stop to help your marriage. So please believe me when I say we love you, we are for you, we are for your marriage. We are not here to condemn. We are here to see people stay together. But when we learned we have sinned, even in ignorance, what is the proper response? It is confession. Confess that you sinned in divorcing your spouse or in marrying someone with a living spouse and join the whole category of sinners, right? (laughs) I mean, you're just in the same boat as the rest of us. We've just sinned in different ways. And if that's the sin that you've committed, we have plenty of other sins that we've committed. And the proper response to sin is confession and then thankfulness for the forgiveness found in Christ, right? 
1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then you do your best to honor the Lord with the marriage that you're in. And this brings us to the next lesson, lesson five. Remain with your current spouse even if you have another living spouse. And then turn to John 4. Remain with your current spouse even if you have another living spouse. And turn to John 4. The context is Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well. John 4, look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Two important things to notice about Jesus' words to this woman. First, he seemed to recognize each of her subsequent husbands as husbands versus what? Adulterous relationships. In other words, he said, you have had five husbands versus you have had one husband and multiple adulterous relationships. And second, maybe you'd say, well, he's just saying they're husbands because she's in a relationship with him. That's not true because Jesus also pointed out that the, la- the current man she's with isn't even a husband. So he didn't say that every man she's with is a husband just because she's with him, because he pointed out the men who were husbands, and now the current man who's just nothing more than an adulterous relationship. In other words, living with a man did not make him her husband, but the men she had married after her first husband did become her subsequent husbands. Next, turn to Deuteronomy 24. This is the last place we'll turn this morning, the fifth book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 24. When a man takes a wife, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, when a man takes a wife and marries, this might sound a little tricky. This woman's in a few relationships, so you're going to have to try to uh, pay special attention. But the gist so that it makes sense is a woman marries a man, he divorces her, then she marries someone else, then he divorces her too. Verse 1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his sight, his eyes, because he's found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife. So a man divorces a woman, she marries someone else, and you need to notice the very important phrase, becomes another man's wife. Do you see that? It does not say she begins an adulterous relationship or another man begins an adulterous relationship with her. It says that she became his wife. It is similar to John 4 in that God seems to recognize the second husband as a husband versus only an adulterous relationship. Then verse 3. The latter man, or the second husband, hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man, the second man, dies, who took her to be his wife. So in other words, the marriage to the second husband ends, whether through divorce or through death. Verse 4, then her former husband, the first husband, who sent her away, notice this, he may not take her again 
to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So here's the important thing to notice. If the first marriage was still in existence because the second marriage wasn't really a marriage but was nothing more than an adulterous relationship, then what should the woman do? Go back to her first husband or her only husband. In other words, if the second man was not a husband, then when he died or when he's out of the picture through whatever way occurs, the correct response would be for her to return to her first husband because he's the only husband that she's had. Instead, that is exactly what is forbidden and called an abomination because she had already become the husband of, or the wife of, another man. And I assume God made this prohibition because he foresaw people, men, using divorce and remarriage to practice legally sanctioned adultery. Marry someone, want a relationship with someone else, or divorce that person, marry this person, but then want a relationship with someone else, or divorce that person, and then go back to the previous wife. Now, I want to conclude with two pieces of marriage encouragement, and this brings us to encouragement one. Church involvement is a major factor lowering divorce rates. Church involvement is a major factor lowering divorce rates. Christians who attend church regularly have much lower divorce rates. Professor Bradley Wright, a sociologist at the University of Connecticut, he provided these statistics. He said people who identify as Christians but rarely attend church have a 60% higher divorce rate. People who identify as Christians but attend church regularly only have a 38% higher divorce rate. Professor Scott Stanley from the University of Denver, who, who worked with leading sociologists on the Oklahoma marriage study, he found something similar. So again, these are probably secular studies conducted by uh, perhaps non-Christians. But to me, that just shows that even in the secular world, there's this recognition of something supernatural happening, that those who attend church regularly have much lower divorce rates. And he wrote, whether young or old, male or female, low income or not, those who said that they were more religious which is how we'd expect the non-Christian world to defer, refer to people who go to church regularly, right? Not passionate for Christ, but more religious. More religious reported higher average levels of commitment to their partners, higher levels of marital satisfaction, less thinking and talking about divorce, and lower levels of negative interaction. These statistics are true regardless of such variables as income, education, and age when married. Now, what do I think is behind these statistics? What is church attendance going to provide you with? It's going to provide you with accountability. It's going to provide you with fellowship. It's going to provide you with Bible teaching about marriage or Bible teaching that provides sanctification and helps you grow as a husband or wife, even if you're not trying to grow as a husband or wife. Prayer, worship, examples, and other godly Christians that you can look up to and learn from. All things that are going to help strengthen marriages that are found in regular church attendance but are not found in the world. In the world, you're going to find people who are going to tell you what? You don't have to put up with that. You shouldn't put up with that. I can't believe he acted that way. I can't believe she talked to you that way. God wants you to be happy. You're going to find high divorce rates because you're going to find people who want nothing more than to see you divorce. Now listen to this. W. Bradford Wilcox, a leading sociologist at the University of Virginia and director of the National Marriage Project, found these statistics. 
He said, people who identify as Christians and regularly attend church are 30% less likely to divorce than those who don't attend church. Now listen to this. People who identify as Christians and rarely attend church are 20% more likely to divorce than people who identify as Christians and don't attend church at all. Let me say this one more time. People who identify as Christians and rarely attend church are 20% more likely to divorce than people who don't attend church at all. You heard that correctly. People who call themselves Christians but rarely go to church have a 20% higher divorce rate than people who don't go to church at all. And why would that be? Here's my suspicion. It's commitment. These are both areas of commitment in people's lives. And people who are not committed in one area of life typically are not committed in other areas of life. And so it would make sense that people that are not committed to their relationships with Christ, the regular church attendance, are not going to be committed to their spouse. To be a person of low commitment in one area probably means lacking commitment in other areas as well. Now my last encouragement, encouragement two, let Christ's faithfulness to you fuel your, fuel your faithfulness to your spouse. Let Christ's faithfulness to you fuel your faithfulness to your spouse. Now, I understand that this is a difficult sermon to hear if you are divorced and single or if you are in a difficult marriage. The truth is, I am sorry. I am sorry to have to say this to you. You're probably saying, you want me to remain single for the rest of my life or be reconciled to my spouse or you want me to remain unmarried or remain married to this difficult person? It's not what I want. It doesn't matter what I want. This is what God wants. This is what God says. I understand a life of singleness can be difficult, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. Difficult is something everyone experiences in one form or another because we live in a fallen world and suffering is part of it. For some people, the difficulty they experience or the cross that they have to bear is a cancer diagnosis. For other people, it's the loss of a child. For other people, it's a miserable job. For other people, it's regular depression or anxiety. And for other people, it could be remaining single if they have a living spouse. For others, the cross they have to bear, which I believe is a cross that greatly honors the Lord, is remaining in a difficult marriage. Sometimes when I become familiar with marriages, I wonder if there are many things more honoring to the Lord than people remaining in that difficult marriage. What honors the Lord more than someone remaining faithful who's married to a very unfaithful or difficult person? The main concern for all of us should be how can we honor the Lord with the cross that we are given? Let me give you the greatest encouragement I can regarding being faithful to a spouse, and it is thinking about Christ's faithfulness to us. You want to keep your eyes on Christ when there are times that you don't want to treat your spouse the way God commands, or you want to keep your eyes on Christ when there are those times that you might not want to remain faithful to your spouse. If you're a husband, there are times you don't want to love and cherish your wife like Christ does the church. If you're a wife, there are times you don't want to submit to your husband and respect him like the church is to do to Christ. Now, at those times, you can't keep thinking about your spouse. You're upset with your spouse. Thinking about your spouse just makes you more upset. You need to think about another relationship. 
you need to draw on your relationship with Christ. So don't think about what your spouse has done to you. Think about what Christ has done for you. Don't think about your spouse's unfaithfulness. Think about Christ's faithfulness. Romans 8, 38, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If there's one person who's never going to separate from you, if there's one person who's never going to divorce you, it is Christ. I would never try to convince a husband that his wife is worthy of his love. I've never been in counseling and looked at a man and said, your wife deserves for you to love her as Christ loves the church. And I have never tried to commit a wife that her husband deserves her submission. I've never looked at a wife and said, your husband deserves for you to submit to him. Because we're all sinners. We don't deserve it. But who deserves our love? Who deserves our submission? We love our wives because we love Christ. And wives submit to their husbands because they want to submit to Christ. Be fueled to be faithful to your spouse because of what Christ has done for you. Let his perfect faithfulness to you be the motivation for your marriage. Now, I know this was a challenging sermon today. If there are any questions, I'll be up front. I will not move from the front until I'm able to talk to every single person that, that wants to talk to me. If we, have, if we stay here, I mean, we'll have to move out at when evening service starts, and then we'll just go to my office. But if, if there are any questions you have about anything or want prayer, please, please do not leave today without giving me the opportunity to speak with you, answer any of those questions, and pray for you. Father, I lift up this sermon with the same request I had at the beginning for your will to be done in people's hearts. And again, I offer, Lord, that if there is something I said that was unfaithful to to your word, then it would be disregarded. But I pray, Lord, that whatever I said that was true and biblical, that rightly, rightly divides your word, would bear witness to your people here. I know that this could fly in the face of some of the teaching that they have heard in the past, and so I'd almost pray for a a supernatural collection of this truth than from other sermons, Lord, and and let it bear witness, the truth that was shared, because it comes from you and is what you would say to each person here. I pray for those people that are finding themselves in in difficult uh, situations, if they would be single or if they'd be divorced, that you would give them particular grace, Lord, for the situations that they find themselves in. For those of us who are married, I, I pray, Lord, for the grace to have marriages that are wonderful reflections of Christ and the church, not necessarily for our benefit, but so that we could be wonderful testimonies of the gospel to those around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.